You know, if we believe that every human is made in the image of God, if we believe that the glory of God fills the earth like the waters fill the sea, we have to believe that God is already present. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Rachel Pye Jones moved to Somalia with her family 18 years ago. They've lived in the Horn of Africa ever since, where almost all their neighbors have been Muslim. This experience has dismantled Rachel's unspoken fears and prejudices and deepened her appreciation for Islam. It has also given her a richer understanding of her own Christian faith. Rachel Pye Jones tells the story of this transformation in her new memoir, Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. Rachel Pye Jones, I'm so glad you were able to join me on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be here with you. It is a miracle that we're able to do this at all since you are in the Horn of Africa and I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and, uh, and, and here we are talking to one another. Um, and there may be some delays and that sort of thing, um, but I'm just glad we're able to talk at all. So your, uh, your new book is called Pillars. And help me with the subtitle of, of the book, uh, Rachel, because I'm drawing a blank. How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. Okay. Um, well, can you just give us the, the quick summary of, of what this book is about? Sure. So this is the story of my personal faith transformation. As an American Christian, I've now lived in the Horn of Africa around Somali Muslims for over 18 years. And so Pillars mm-hmm. captures that what that experience has done to my faith, the impact it's had on my faith. Yeah. And the pillars refer to the five pillars of Islam, which... Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, that, and that's sort of the organizational principle of the book. Yeah. So the five pillars of Islam are the five foundational things that Muslims believe and practice. Um, I mean, there's many other things that are part of Islam, but these are the five major ones that when people think about Islam, this is what comes to mind. So there, mm-hmm. the Shahada is the first one. That's the creed. And that is really the only one that involves faith. What do you believe about God? And so there's a, you know, a sentence that Muslims will say, there's only... There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And so then the next pillar is called Zakat, uh, sorry, Salat, prayer. And this is the one that is five times a day prayer that Muslims engage in. There's a call to prayer. They have um, motions that they do. They have prayers that they recite, always in Arabic. Um, the third one is called Zakat, which is charity or giving. The fourth one is Ramadan. So this is a month of fasting, which is actually coming up now in the middle of April, where from sunrise until sunset, Muslims will not eat or drink anything um, for 30 days for a month. And then the fifth one is called Hajj, which is pilgrimage. And this is when Muslims will go to Mecca and engage in a series of established rituals altogether. And so the book is um, formed around those five pillars in the ways that creed, prayer, giving, fasting, and pilgrimage have um, the ways that I've kind of used Islam and learned from Islam to incorporate and, and strengthen my own Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you said something interesting just, just then, is that first pillar is the only one that, that requires a specific faith commitment. Everything else is a, is a, is a practice that is equally relevant to mm-hmm. Christianity um, you know, it's, it's as relevant to Christianity as it mm-hmm. is to Islam. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the way that they look and the way they're practiced are different, very different. But but yeah, the Shahada is really 
that foundational belief is what makes a person a Muslim. The and shahada is the the creed you're saying. The creed, yep, yeah, yep, the creed. Yeah. Um, I think the most interesting thing, the 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 idea that that really made me sit up and take notice in your book, uh, the one that I found most, uh, and there, there are many great insights in there, but but the one that I found most interesting, the one I wanted to spend some time with right now is the idea that your idea of, of what a what it means to be a witness completely changed in your time um, among Somali Muslims. Um, uh, you know, we, we think of, of you know, when, when Jesus says, go and be a witness that we are, we typically as Christian people think in terms of, um, I have somehow witnessed, I, I am serving as a witness to um, something to this faith that I'm now going to tell other people about who, who haven't witnessed it themselves, um, which is certainly not irrelevant to the idea of being a witness. But you, uh, you sort of, your understanding of that deepened. Can you tell me about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Initially, I came here with that one idea of being a witness, basically proclamational. Um, mm-hmm. I have had an experience with God through Jesus, and my responsibility is to tell people about that in that sense of being a witness. So, so a go and tell sort of yeah. thing. And that is absolutely valid. You know, it's part of our faith. It's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus sent out the disciples to do that in the New Testament. And in Acts, we have the disciples, you know, being filled with the Spirit and going out to be witnesses. But also there's this other, I think, I don't know if it's deeper, but just another idea of being a witness, which is to see something. So when we yeah. witness something, we are seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of a go and see type of witness. And I yeah. feel like if I want to have any grounds to speak a proclamational type of witness, I have to also already have experienced and embodied a go and see type of witness, meaning you know, to really see and understand the context in which I am and the people and what is their worldview, where, where are they coming from, what's their perspective. Mm-hmm. So that part of witnessing, of just really seeing the people around me but also, like a, another aspect of that type of witness would be that God is already here. Yeah. So how can I witness and see the ways that God is moving? You know, if we believe that every human is made in the image of God, if we believe that the glory of God fills the earth like the waters fill the sea, we have to believe that God is already present. There's no place that he isn't. And so yeah. the, the type of witness that sees God at work in a place like Somalia, like Djibouti, like Minneapolis, where I'm from, that's the kind of witness that I've really come alive to um, in the sense of having my eyes just open and ready to see how is God working here already? And how can I participate in that? How can I call that out, um, help other people see it, or even just take delight in it myself? Yeah, I love that. And that that seems, you know, of course, this is a podcast about writing. Um, And, and I think that that uh, posture is so important for a writer. Um, even a writer, you know, on, I mean, I shouldn't say even, especially a writer on issues of faith, right? That, that I'm not merely, um, proclaiming or I'm not always in a position of proclaiming. I'm, you know, if I'm going to proclaim in ways that make any sense, I've got to be paying attention to what's going on and, and, and have my eyes mm-hmm. open. Um, that's, it's that observation. You know, yeah. and especially, sorry, uh, especially as an outsider in this mm-hmm. context where, um, you know, I'm, st- I'm living here, I am 
clearly foreign, even though I've been here a long time, I will never be local. And yeah. so to assume that that I don't need to really pay attention, to be curious, to be witnessing what's here, and then to try to write out of that experience in which I, if I have failed to really witness it and see it, I don't think anything that I write would have validity. Um, I feel like it would be disrespectful in some ways. It wouldn't be fully honoring mm -hmm. of this context. And so especially when you're trying to write as an outsider, as a foreigner, even though I'm writing my own experience, it's still very much a part of my life here. You know, that comes into my work. And so, yeah, I just feel like I have to be that kind of witness to really inform my work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as you say, you say I, I think, I do think Christians must first be learners, observers, and seekers of signs that God is already at work, which you've kind of already said. Um, but but I love that idea. And, and and you have been for these last 18 years in the position of an outsider. So, you know, as a writer, as a Christian, um, as an American, you know, you, you are an, an outsider there. Um, and I think I'm going to I might have some trouble putting this into words, but but that that tendency um, I think it's so important for for writers to to step outside of what's so familiar um, to us, mm -hmm. so that we don't end up sort of repeating the, you know, the uh, we we need to somehow be slightly alienated from the things that we're talking about and writing about. I, I don't know if I'm the floor is open, Rachel. Yeah. If you want to add to that, <laughs> yeah, that may absolutely. I mean, that is my experience has always been like that, and so. You know, I I just have to be curious because I've I've written stories about how this special kind of bread is made here, and I have no idea how to make that kind of bread. And so I I have to ask questions about yeah. every single step, or you know how to build the the nomadic huts that women will build. It's so far outside of my context and my familiarity that all I can do is be a learner and curious. And so even yeah. some of the questions I ask, friends will laugh at me because in their context it seems like kind of a silly question. People should just know that. Yeah. But of course I don't because I'm an outsider. And so if I was writing about my context of Minnesota, I wouldn't even know maybe what a different person would be curious about, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, but as I'm an outsider here, I recognize all the things that are different and strange to me. Um, and then I can highlight that. And what I've heard from my local friends is that they actually really enjoy that that uh -huh. perspective and that angle yeah. because it helps them to see their place in a different way. So some of my favorite writing is when um, like I've read some Somali writers who have emigrated to the U S so they'll write about the United States from their outsider perspective. And I just find mm -hmm. that fascinating. Yeah. Did you, um, when, when you were growing up in, in Minneapolis, I guess just where you grew up. Minneapolis. Yeah. Did you feel like an outsider there? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was very much um, inside my community, which is, which kind of comes out in the book that I really had a strong sense of belonging and identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm white. I'm, my family was, we grew up in a suburb. I grew up in a suburb. We went to a Baptist church. It was kind of a small community, but it was very safe. And I knew exactly who I was and who were kind of my people. Yeah. And so that sense, of really groundedness and rootedness. I'm really thankful for that, but I, I needed to outgrow that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or when you go back to Minneapolis now, do you feel like an outsider? Yes. Yes, very much. That's, 
That's the strange thing because I will always be outside both places now. Yeah. I've been so transformed by all these years here, essentially all my adult life, that when we do go back, we're not quite American anymore, but we're never going to be fully Jabushan. So we're in this kind of third space, um, yeah. which is, it's an interesting thing to navigate. Do you think you are now a little more qualified to write about Minneapolis than you were before? Boy, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, maybe, but yeah. I feel like I have not paid sufficient attention. Hmm. I mean, I've definitely paid attention recently um, to things that are happening, you know, in the city, there's a lot of Somalis there. So I pay attention to the Somali community there, yeah. um, you know, with George Floyd's murder and all the, yeah. um, the protests that happened after that, I've paid attention, but I don't, that would be really challenging. Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, uh, are you familiar? I don't know if you're familiar with, with the, uh, the journalist and novelist, Tom Wolf. Um, but you know one of his one of his early pieces that he wrote that was that is really good. It's 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 about NASCAR, and so he was a he was a dapper New Yorker, famous for wearing white suits everywhere he went. And um, and he he came down from New York to North Carolina to write this story about Junior Johnson in the in the NASCAR, and so he wanted to fit in with the locals. And so he decided to, to wear like a different color tweed, that, like a greenish tweed that he wouldn't normally wear and some, some kind of shoes, some sort of loafers, because uh, he thought that'd be more like the locals and he, he would fit in better. And um, it, it was, yeah, I said a, a greenish tweed. And so as he kind of went around with Junior Johnson, um, somebody said, somebody said to, to Junior, started referring to him as a little, the little green man <laughs> who would walk around with him. Anyway, the point of my story, point of this story is that he realized at that point that he was never going to fit in with, you know, the North Carolina, you know, with North Carolina or, or anywhere else besides his particular place. And so he actually started wearing those white suits that he was famous for as a way of cementing his outside status. So, in other words, he he felt better about asking, you know, what's a camshaft or what you know, what's a flywheel when he was writing about the you know about NASCAR, and he found that his ignorance and outsiderness really put him in a great position as a writer. And he, it, you know, once he decided he wasn't going to try to fit in with the locals, I thought that was really interesting, and I thought that about is, that often when I was reading. His yes, story. yes, that's exactly it. That's. I need to go read that story. I mean, that's so true, even even to clothing here. I mean, when we first came, we really had that idea. In 2003, you know, I need to conform. I need to look mm-hmm. like everybody else. I need to, you can spiritualize it by saying I need to die to self uh-huh. um, and things like that. Like that aspect is true, but the way that we make that, uh, the way we embody that practically, it doesn't mean being stripped of everything of who we are. And so one of the things I've really embraced lately is that I am not just a random person that came here. I'm Rachel Pye Jones. I'm a writer. I'm a runner. These are specific things I love and do. And how can I really live out who I am like Tom Wolf was doing with his suits, you yeah. know, um, in a way that is both attractive and, and not off-putting, but also that's not saying I'm just like you because that would be really naive and almost condescending in a way yeah. to the local people. Um, and so I've just really, in probably the last kind of five years, and I think part of this comes from so many years abroad, but I've really just started to embrace more and more of 
really living out of who I am, which is kind mm. of where this book came out of, of just, um, this is really who I am. And this is what I love. I love spiritual things, um, even if they're different than my own spiritual things. Mm-hmm. And I just want to you know, present that story. Yeah. So what is the relationship between, at one point you say, um, um, so far from home, the only viable position is that of a learner. Um, is how does that relate to this this idea of of you um, learning to be more of yourself? If I'm if I'm phrasing that right, um, how do those two things relate to one another, and and how do they shape you as a writer? Mm-hmm. I think it comes down to asking a lot of questions, um, but not needing to fully embrace what I'm hearing as the answers or what I'm mm-hmm. learning, not needing to fully uh, conform, but really being able to appreciate where the other person is coming from. So, um, you know, being a learner to understand, okay, this is what you understand about God. This is what you understand about, uh, you know, the role of women or different mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And I, and I can really then appreciate that and understand it even and respect it Um and even regurgitate it in some way. But then I don't have to necessarily embrace that myself because that's not who I am. That's not necessarily what I think about what fasting should look like or could look like. And so there's just a way of being able to hold both things that I think is really important. Um, We need to be able to hold these differences to say, okay, you're different than me and I'm different than you and that's okay. And we can still have really fruitful conversation. I'm not, I don't feel threatened by our differences. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, um, that's really good. I mean, your, your, the more of yourself you bring to it, the more open you can be to that difference. And, um, and the more ready you are to, to the bridge, the bridge gaps, you know? Uh, yes. Yes. I love it. Um, here's a passage I, I want to talk about. I think this is maybe from the conclusion of your book. Um, you say, rather than admiring the distance between Muslims and myself or building a barrier of contrast, I felt compelled to step toward God and in doing so, step toward my Muslim neighbors. Um, tell me about that phrase, admiring the distance between my Muslim, between Muslims and myself. What do you yeah, that's a quote from, yeah, that's a quote from Thomas Merton. And I think uh, that yeah. even today with in the United States, from my understanding, as I live over here, um, it seems like people are really creating even more and more difference. And they're looking at the difference and saying, do you see how we don't agree? Do you see how wrong you are because you don't agree with me? And it kind of is a way of bolstering one's own self um, mm. in, in this sense of rightness that mm-hmm. I have. And so see how different we are. You are not like me because of these things. And we can point out all these differences and almost celebrate that in some way that's condemning of the other person and very judgmental. Um, And that's not the way that I want to live here. I don't Mm. think that I could even have enjoyed living here for all these years, if that's what I was insistent on doing. But instead being able to, to say, okay, we're different, but as I draw near to God, as I'm a person of faith and practice my faith, and as you, my Muslim neighbor, are a person of faith and are drawing near to God in your practices, can we draw closer to each other? 
Can we um, remove some of that difference between us? And I think, yes, we absolutely can. And I think we need to, especially now more and more. Yeah. You, you talk about also talk about building a barrier of contrast. I don't know. Are, are you quoting Merton there again? Or is that, is that just you? Yes, that's also Merton. <laughs> okay. Um, the, I think that's such an interesting, both admiring the distance and building a barrier of contrast. I mean, I, I'm, I guess I, I keep, when I think about those ideas, I realize how tempting it is as a, as a writer to, to live there. For one thing, it's, it's a pretty good way to build an audience, right? Um, you, as you, as you, af, you know, affirm and confirm people in their, um, in their tendencies, um, readers love that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I could have told this whole story in a different way. I could have, um, I could have highlighted those differences. I could have made one set of people feel really good about themselves Mm-hmm. Probably Christians, because that's that's my you know identification. Yeah. But that wouldn't that's not the full truth. That's not the full story. And so I've I've tried to find this middle space, which is quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could have told the stories that people expect to hear from the Horn of Africa about right. poverty and violence and yeah. religious fundamentalism and pirates. And you know, we mm-hmm. have encountered a few of those things, but the the fullness is not that. And so, yeah, you know, I just made a very in, an intentional attempt to to write the story in that middle space because that's where I live, and it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of tension in it. There's a lot of yes and or mm-hmm. no but kind of yeah. feeling. Um, but I don't know how else to live authentically in a pluralistic society. I just feel like we have to be able to to live in that middle space with the tension and, and being okay with it um, in order to have any kind of fruitful relationships and conversations with people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, and by the way, you do start this story with, you do start this book with a story of, of you're being run out of town by murderous extremists. Um, mm-hmm. And, but as you say, you're, you're telling a fuller story than that. And, you know, it's so important for writers to slow down and say, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a, a bigger story. You know, everybody's busy and and we need, you know, we, we at least feel the need to have simplified versions of the narratives. Um, and, and the writer has the, has the privilege. And I think the responsibility to say, I'm not going to give you the simplified version. I'm going to give you the fuller version and, and the more nuanced version. Um, I'm going to slow down where you busy reader haven't had the opportunity or haven't taken the opportunity to slow down and think through these things. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, uh, I, I really appreciate the way that you slowed down and gave the bigger picture and really changed my way of thinking about what's going on in, um, in the Horn of Africa. Um, so thank you for that. I end every episode of this podcast, Rachel, with the question, who are the writers who make you want to write? So there's, there's the question. Yeah, this is really fun to think about. Um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she's a writer that I really admire, and she's a Nigerian woman. She's okay. the woman who gave a very well-known TED Talk about the single story. And oh, how yeah. Yeah, I've it, seen that. It refers back to, yeah, like what you were just saying about um, 
it, it is reference or um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, so she had this thing, she told this TED talk about the single story and she has several novels about Nigeria that I just, I really love. Um, another writer that By the I way, really, can you tell me more uh, about the single story? I'm, I'm sorry, Rachel, real quickly. Can you, <laughs> can you uh, what does she mean by the single story? Yeah, so basically no one has or is a single story. You know, the idea that Africa is a monolith or that Somalis are only pirates or only fundamentalists, that would be a single story. No uh -huh. one can be uh, boiled down to that, eliminated to one thing about us. And so uh, she just tries to blow up that idea uh -huh. that would constrain all of us to one thing, which I think is so important, again, when we look at Islam as American Christians, uh, there is definitely, at least in my world, a single story that's told about Muslims and about Islam. And that is not the fullness and the richness historically, currently, relationally, you know. And so we just need to blow up that idea. So I love her work. Um, another writer who really makes me want to write is Barbara Brown Taylor. Mm -hmm. And she writes about faith in this way that she wrestles with her own doubts mm -hmm. right on the page. Um, she's not afraid to you know, take a turn in the middle of a book from, you know, leaving church is one of her books. And she writes about being a priest and then she leaves that and becomes a professor. So, uh -huh. and she embraces both roles. And so I love the ability that she demonstrates of um, embracing multiple, multiple callings, multiple gifts, multiple ways of even thinking about God on the page. Yeah. Um, another writer that I'm enjoying currently right now is a writer named Gia Tolentino. Okay. And I don't always agree with her conclusions, but I think she has this incredible way of twisting on the page also. So she takes the reader along through her thought process. Um, she has a, a book of essays out called Trick Mirror. And mm -hmm. I just love going with her mind as she untangles complicated things and comes to various conclusions. So that kind of writing where the, I can see the writer wrestling on the page with an idea or a conviction I love that because you can follow along and then decide, you know, where you might fall as you read yeah. in your own conviction or conclusion. But yeah. I like that. Um, and then I'll, I'll mention one more because I think this is really important as a writer. And this is a woman who is basically writing in obscurity. Her name is Marilyn Gardner, but she's a friend of mine and we talk about writing. And yeah. I, what her work does when I read her work because I know her heart behind it personally. Yeah. I know that she is bringing passion and courage onto the page and she's writing, like I said, in obscurity, she's not known, yeah. but she keeps doing the work. And yeah. so I love that when I see, when I see her work, I just remember this is not about our own fame. Obviously it's not about our own money. You know, none of these things <laughs> we're just writing because we're compelled to do the work. We're compelled yeah. to, to share the story. And so, um, I think writers like that who just can really reveal the the passion and the commitment to the work without having all that fame and accolade that goes with it, that really inspires me. Yeah, no, I, I love that insight. That that the it is our if, if we're fortunate enough to have friends who are writers. Um, that's my experience too. It's, it's, it's not there. And it's not even the fact that even if they're published writers, it's not their publications that are, that inspire me to keep, keep going. It's, it's their lives and, and their, um, their commitment. So, 
Well, thank you, Rachel yeah, Pie Jones. Um, this has been so fun, and uh, I uh, I wish the best for 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 this book, Pillars. Uh, where it it's it will have just released whenever we uh, release this episode. So um, so I hope hope for the best uh, for the book and for you. Uh, thank you for your uh, for your insights and your willingness to tell a fuller story. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy talking about writing and all these things. Great. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.